would you go about fulfilling our Lord's great commission to reach the entire world with the complete message that He has left us in His all-sufficient Word? And what personal qualifications are needed within anyone who would strive to be part of this endeavor? Dr. John Whitcomb has been studying and teaching the Bible for more than 60 years, and he attempts to answer these questions today here on Encounter God's Truth. Last week, he began this message entitled, Steering Clear of Shipwreck. Speaking before a group of pastors and church leaders, Dr. Whitcomb wove together principles from a number of texts of Scripture to form the basis of this unique address. We left off last time thinking about the instruction of the conscience, along with the importance of a pure conscience and the penalties inherent in violating one's conscience. One passage that we'll consider today comes from the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I'm Wayne Shepherd, your host, inviting you to stay with us and listen carefully as we pick up with just a brief review from last time. Dr. Whitcomb is sharing the results of his research on the significance of the conscience. So here he is with the second part of his message, Steering Clear of Shipwreck. He appeals to 1 Peter 3, which we read. He said, 1 Peter 3.16 shows that a clear conscience enables one to endure persecution. Battles without can be handled if there is no battle going on within. As with Paul and the writer of Hebrews, Peter sees that clear conscience as being very important to the Christian life. One cannot defile the conscience without serious spiritual consequences. The Christian conscience, he says, is a lifelong process of being shaped by the Word of God in the fellowship of believers. Thank you, friends, for providing such encouragement to Norm and me through all these years. Someday, in the presence of Jesus, we'll realize how merciful and gracious he's been to us to encourage one another in the Word. And finally, this quote. Conversion understood as a conscious turning to faith in Christ and obedience to him, inescapably involves the conscience. Conversion involves the conscience. How? Are you ready? The conscience undergoes a change of authority focus, a conscience that has previously emphasized the standards of parents and social groups, begins to witness to the will of Christ and to find its focus there. That's it. When we are redeemed, transformed by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit of God moves in, makes our body his temple, and begins to instruct, illumine, inform our conscience as never before. It's never, it's never the same again. Never the same again. And therefore, friends, to have faith with a pure conscience means taking God at his word for what he meant by what he said in the Bible. Faith. Now, what's faith? So, some Christians are embarrassed to have to say when people say, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Well, I have faith. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. I thought you had scientific, historical, archaeological proof that the Bible is true. Well, of course, all those things, if you spend enough years studying those things, will show you the Bible is perfectly reliable, perfectly accurate. But to have an inner conviction, a deep insur assurance of your heart that the Bible is true, requires what? Faith. Take God. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You're absolutely convinced, confirmed by something that you can't see, 
concerning a person who, I mean, seeing him who's invisible, like Moses did, by faith. Take him at his word by faith. Okay? Now, friends, I was horrified to read this brief article in a Christian magazine describing George Barna's survey in recent years of what American Christians believe, what their faith really is. I was shocked. He said, now, George Barna is a famous pollster. He's done a very accurate, credible job through the years surveying what people think and believe about all kinds of things. He says, millions of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. I'm talking about many millions. Now, but be careful. What does he mean by born-again Christian? Here's what he says. Those who report having made a personal commitment to Christ and expect to get to heaven because they accepted Jesus. People say, yes, I'm born again. I believe in Jesus. I believe I'm going to heaven. But, but what do they believe about God's word? Listen to this. 50% of them believe that a life of good works will enable a person to get to heaven. Works salvation. That's, of course, not just true of Roman Catholics, you understand, but of many millions of Protestants. Listen to this one. one third, more than one-third of born-again Christians in America do not believe Jesus rose physically from the dead. Listen to this one. Over half of born-again Christians, 52%, do not believe the Holy Spirit is a person. 45% don't believe that Satan exists. I say, wait a minute here. Who are these people? A tiny minority of born-again Christians in America, according to Barna's survey, are evangelical born-again Christians who believe what the Bible says. A very small percentage. Do you know what born-again Christians need in America to say nothing of non-believers? They need a solid dose of biblical truth. Preach the word. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That covers the whole Bible. Thank you. Genesis to Revelation. You say, well, that's impossible. Teach every man in the world everything you ever wrote, the whole Bible. That's impossible. That's what you're supposed to say if you take it seriously. And then Jesus adds a footnote. Are you ready? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the answer. We're going to do this together. Synergism. You do what I said, I'll do what you can't do, and we're doing this together. That's the way sanctification works, you know. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, says Paul. Why? How? For it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. You do what you can do under God, because he's going to do what you can't do, and together it'll happen. Salvation, sanctification, indoctrination, the truth, faith, that leads to what? An informed, active conscience before God. I say, thank you, Lord. I think I'm beginning to see something here. It's not very encouraging in some ways, but it's profoundly therapeutic and helpful. Now, what is this body of truth that we're supposed to be believing, that we're supposed to take by faith? Okay? 
Well, first of all, of course, God's character and his attributes. There's number one, surely. The holiness of God. Remember Isaiah, holy, 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 said the seraphim in the presence of God. That's his basic fundamental attribute. Holiness. Yes. And that's the basis upon which we have truth. Constantly, constantly, Jesus, when he was here, said, I'm the way, the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth. Yes, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. Jesus said in John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we all know this one, don't we? John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 18, he said to Pontius Pilate at his final trial, For this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Namely, anyone who has been what? Convicted and illumined and transformed by the Holy Spirit. I can't do that to somebody. I'm sorry. I cannot help anybody be born again by arguments and evidences and logic. Can't do it. But I know someone who can. Jesus said, I'm, Jesus said, I'll send another comforter who shall convict the world. You can't. He will. Convict the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will do it. He can do it. He is infinitely qualified to do something to help people that I can't do. I'll tell him who Jesus is. I'll tell him what the Bible says. But to transform that heart, to illumine that conscience is an infinite challenge that only the third person of the triune Godhead can accomplish. Thank you, Lord. What else do we know about God? We know that he is love. 1 John 4, 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Agape, a special word, the kind of love that the world knows nothing about. To do for somebody else what they need in the light of eternity, no matter what the cost may be to me. God so loved the world that way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is love. Now, you you notice we have holiness and truth first, then love. Because truth, biblical truth, is greater than biblical love. 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, truth is what? Supreme. Love rejoices in the truth. Love is the greatest of the moral attributes you see. But truth is the frame of reference within which love operates. And without truth, love is a disaster. Many a mother and father in this country says, well, I sure love my child. I'll just give them anything they want. Well, that's a disaster. That's That's not genuine biblical love to do what's best in the light of eternity for the one you say you love. Yes, we need God's perspective, friends, on holiness, truth, and love. And how do we learn about this? All right. From the Bible, you say, well, how do I know the Bible is true? Well, of course, because the Holy Spirit illumines you and me to understand these things that we don't have the time or brilliance to demonstrate scientifically, historically, archaeologically, logically. Yes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is theopneusos, God breathed. It is God created. God wrote the Bible. Forty men wrote the Bible, yes, but God told them what to write and how to write using their idiosyncrasies, personality traits, characteristics, distinct. But God wrote the Bible. 
And that's why it's profitable for instruction. You can count on it. You can depend upon it. And that's why the Bible is living and powerful. Hebrews 4.12. Here's another one of my favorite statements. I'm sure yours too. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divining center of soul and spirit, joined in marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature on this planet that is not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Wow, the powerful, penetrating, piercing Word of God. And you know what else? For that reason, friends, the Word of God is not only inspired and not only living and powerful, it is absolutely, totally sufficient for the human heart and mind. It's sufficient. That is one of my concerns today. In the providence of God, I have a little book coming off the press this late this summer called Jesus Christ, Our Intelligent Designer. For years, I have watched a movement sweep the world, and you have too, called the Intelligent Design Movement. And brilliant philosophers and scientists are writing many books and having many debates with evolutionists and proving that, that the world could never have come about by chance, mindless evolution. You say, wonderful. Praise the Lord. But here's the problem. This is very serious. The great leaders of the intelligent design movement will never mention Jesus by name or the Bible. They're ashamed of the Bible. They're ashamed that the evolutionists will laugh at them and say, well, you, you just have some kind of a religious agenda. You don't really, you're not really serious about discussing these things scientifically, philosophically. You have a religious agenda. And I say, Lord, help me now. Help me now. Jesus says someday something awful is going to happen to these people. You ready? Mark eight thirty-eight. Listen to this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Question. Would you like to be targeted by Jesus at his coming as one of whom he's ashamed. I'm so sad. Now some philosophers in the intelligent design movement are Christians, I think. I'm quite sure, in fact. But they are ashamed of Jesus. You say, well, I can't imagine such a thing. God says, trust me, I will take care of my reputation. You just tell people who I am, what I've said, what I've written. I'll take care of the results. Because the Holy Spirit, you see, is being minimized, ostracized, as one who is completely irrelevant. A Christian life and testimony, fervent effectual prayer, eliminated, telling people the full gospel, ignored, to do what? To win an academic, scientific, intellectual debate with an evolutionist. By the way, that's the easiest thing you can do today, to show an atheist... He's wrong. It's very simple, very easily done. I have many books about that, and so do you. But you see, I, I know one atheist, in fact, who decided, I've had it. I think the world was designed by some intelligent being. But he died without Christ. So sad. So sad. And I say, Lord, help me to realize that the Bible is not only inspired 
living and powerful, but totally sufficient. The Bible is sufficient to take care of the total need of every human, every atheist, every evolutionist in the world. The Bible can do it. Jude chapter 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, what else does the Bible tell us that we have to believe? Well, this is now a, a lengthy part of my message which will last for two hours. It's called creationism. <laughs> God created the whole universe in six literal days. Amazing. I didn't used to believe that. I was an evolutionist, as you perhaps know. I have my testimony back there in our book table in the corner. Priorities in presenting the faith of conversion of an evolutionist. I'm so thankful that the soul winner who led me to Jesus didn't spend months arguing about evolutionism. He went right to my heart with the gospel, and I've never recovered. Creation. Then what? The curse that transformed everything from a perfect, beautiful world. We've never recovered from the curse. Then came the Genesis flood that destroyed the entire living world except those inside of a box floating on a shoreless ocean for months called the ark. You, you're not serious. You mean the whole world was covered with water? Yes, Jesus said so. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. For in those days, days men were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not, be ready, until Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and took them all away. Nobody survived except those in the ark. Jesus was there. Trust him. Then came what? The dispersion from the Tower of Babel that explains the linguistic differences, thousands of languages, different physical features of people through isolation and inbreeding. And then what does the Bible teach about the creation of Israel, Abraham, Moses, the creation of the church, the coming of the kingdom, the final judgment, the eternal state. Enormous material, friends. Enormous masses of revelation. Add these items. God's special way to care for his people. Justification. Instantaneous and total forever. We have a position in Christ that's perfect by his grace. Sanctification, the process of dealing with sin, activating, living up to the light of the conscience, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord through our entire Christian life. And finally, glorification, which could happen today. Amen. Are you ready? It'll, it'll be like this. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And it's not a partial rapture. Every born-again Christian will be there. Praise God. I say, Lord, I'm amazed at all the things you have taught us that you expect us to believe and take seriously. Faith in what you've said will do what? Instruct and form my conscience. Whether I'm doing the right thing the right way, telling everybody I meet, hand out gospel tracts, tell people about Jesus. I mean, that's the only thing that really matters until he comes. Tell people about the Lord, and the Holy Spirit will begin his marvelous work of sanctification in the human heart.
Dr. John Whitcomb reminding us that to have faith with a pure conscience means taking God at His word for what He meant by what He said in the Bible. For learning how to live and serve God freely with a clear conscience on this edition of Encounter God's Truth. If you missed the first half of this message, you can always hear it again at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. In fact, you'll find nearly 1,000 messages there, and every one of them reinforces our conviction that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. Again, that's at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. Right now, let's listen to the conclusion of our study on steering clear of shipwreck. Dr. Whitcomb finishes with some personal reflections about men who have influenced his own spiritual life in an important way. Now, friends, I close with a tribute to three men who were my mentors in theology. Now, Donald B. Fullerton at Princeton University was my soul winner, my spiritual father. I came from a godless home. Donald Fullerton, in 1943, led me to the Savior. But then he urged me to go to a school way off in Indiana, in a little town called Winona Lake, where he had heard much about the magnificent theological stand of a man called Alva J. McLean. Ever heard of him? All right, ten people, thank you. (laughs) Under whom I sat for three years and was his fellow professor for another dozen years. Magnificent instruction, especially in biblical eschatology, the coming of the kingdom, the greatness of the kingdom. His book on Romans and so forth. In fact, on our table back here, we have a special offer of his book on Bible truths and... uh, a story of the impact of his uh, theological position on the entire evangelical world, a 20-page article there. We hope you'll take those. And uh, when he went to be with the Lord, my next great teacher, colleague, was Herman A. Hoyt, and we have a book about him on the table there. Great stalwart. He believed in fighting the good fight of faith. (laughs) Herman Hoyt will never be the same. And then one of my godly teachers, helpers, encouragers, James L. Boyer. These men went to be with the Lord Hoyt and Boyer about 10 years ago now. And uh, I wonder if they're looking down on us today with Alva J. McLean saying, what's going on down there in Kalamazoo today? (laughs) Men who were used of God to instruct me and many, many others in how to honor God with uh, God-honoring biblical ordinances to to understand justification, the bread and the cup, and sanctification, and uh, the foot-washing service, and glorification, the fellowship meal, anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb, and these precious truths, friends, that have been entrusted to us from men of God in years gone by. And I say, Lord, thank you for the heritage you've given to me. The godly examples of men who not only said they believed the Bible, but showed that they were really seriously committed to everything God ever said in the only book he ever wrote, the Bible. Friend, I just asked this question this morning. How's your conscience before God? Let's pray. Father, now, I thank you for your Bible, your book, your written revelation, inspired, inerrant, powerful, sharp, sufficient, 
What a reflection of the glory of God we find in this book the Holy Spirit wrote over 2,000 years. May our small fellowship, Father, small on the side of the world, but not in your sight, you specialize in small things that want to trust in you. One man, in fact, with God is a majority, as we learn throughout all of history. We pray, Father, that you will show us the things you want us to do that will honor you, not only in the United States of America, but in Africa, in India, in Latin America, and everywhere in the world. We can get the message out to people of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has said by the record the Holy Spirit has given us in the Bible. Bless our fellowship as never before, how desperately we need your help, guidance, instruction, confrontation, yes, conviction, illumination, that our conscience will be a good conscience before you and before men, that we may be rejoicing when we see the, the Savior and be like him when we see him as he really is. This prayer I offer now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. How is your conscience before God? With that probing question and this heartening word of prayer, we end this two-part look at Steering Clear of Shipwreck. For continued encouragement during the week ahead, follow our updates at facebook.com slash Ministries. And for complete information, you can always go to our homepage at whitcombministries.org. It's a joy to meet with you each week by way of this broadcast ministry to share timeless truths for changing times. My name is Wayne Shepherd, hoping you'll join us again next time for more Bible teaching here on Encounter God's Truth. Thanks for listening to this presentation of Whitcomb Ministries.